International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 16. Tools for Turning the Story, Part 2. Superior position, it's sometimes called dramatic irony. Superior position because the audience are put in a superior position to the characters. They know more than the hero knows or they know more than another character knows. Uh, the most, one of the most famous examples of this is, say, the beginning of Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, where the narrator of this film, the, the person who, is, who narrates the whole story, right at the beginning of the film, is floating downwards in the pool having, with three shots in him, <laughs> three bullet holes in him. So the audience, right from the beginning, are put in a superior position to the character. So the character is going to be telling them the story, we know how he ends up, but he doesn't. Um, just an aside, uh, uh, well, again, what this achieves is it means that you know how it ends, so now you're, you want to know why it ends this way, what, what happened, rather than, rather than simply the, the dramatic narrative, you're interested in other questions. This puts us in a position of fearing for our, our hero because we know something he doesn't. So it's a very powerful tool for driving the story, turning the film. Why? Because it actually taps right into the audience's emotions and feelings, and feelings of dread, feelings of hope. Um, we are put into... Uh, it, it doesn't always have to be that we're put into a superior position in terms of the hero. It can be some of the minor characters or, or even the flat characters in the film. Flat characters are a character so minor that you want to write them flat because um, if you write a minor character in an interesting way you've just made a contract with the audience and you need to know that and the contract is this he will reappear in the film she will reappear in the film so remember that if you if you write an interesting taxi driver in your film the audience actually think you're making a statement to them that, you, that you're saying this character will, before the film ends, will reappear because this, isn't he interesting? Isn't she interesting? And they say, yeah, we'd like to meet them again. So what you would try and do in that is, is actually be interesting, but as flat as possible. You do not want to create, if they're not going to reappear, you do, not, you, do want to, you do not want to create the anticipation that they will reappear. And that's called writing the character flat. Okay. So in Rain Man, they're out on the plains. <laughs> And, um, of course, uh, one of the themes of, of Rain Man is addiction, okay? So Raymond's addicted to television, you know, he's got to have his fix, you know, he's got to have his judge, you, you, you know, his uh, judge what, is it? He's got a sort of main line. So he's saying, it's almost like he starts to tremble, you know, saying, it's getting near the time now, I'm going to miss it. This is, this is of course, this, this is Raymond's fixed universe. Without this, his universe crashes apart. So it's very understandable. Um, and so there they are in the middle of nowhere, and, he, and Raymond needs his TV fix. So um, they go up to this farmhouse, right? And uh, what are they going to do? So they, they, they pretend to be from the Nielsen ratings. <laughs> And they've got to watch this program. And of course, the woman, you know, just totally rejects them flat. You know, there's no way you're coming in my house. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, it's a, a delightful scene because um, 
you know, the, the position of a superior position doesn't last very long. It disintegrates. <laughs> the ruse doesn't work. But what happens is that Tom Cruise discovers this terrible thing, which is that a direct appeal to the truth works <laughs> where the lie doesn't. So he just tells her the truth, and, and she lets them in. And then what makes the film work is, is that instead of, okay, they're home and dry, she then says, well, won't a cartoon do? Because we're dealing with addiction out there in the heartland of America, you know? <laughs> you know? We want to watch the cartoon. Does it have to be <laughs> this program? And he's saying, well, basically, you know, here we are. It's life and death for Raymond, but won't a cartoon do? And then the little boy starts to cry because he can't have his cartoon. That's great because it's, it's human, okay? It's human. It's the humanity... Uh, rescues this from being just a generic scene. Jeopardy exists on many levels. The, the one that uh, most people reach for, first of all, is physical jeopardy, where your hero is in physical danger, where a character is in physical danger. There is psychological jeopardy, there is emotional jeopardy, and there's moral jeopardy. And of all these, in the great hierarchy of things, moral jeopardy is the one the audience fear most. Um, the only other thing to remember, okay, uh, which we've talked about before when we were dealing with empathy, is one of the classic devices for creating empathy is to place your character in jeopardy. So there's an umbilical cord between jeopardy and empathy. We talked about the double defeat that uh, occurs at the end of Act Two, usually, traditionally. Of course, you don't want just one apparent defeat. You want a series of apparent defeats in the film. And usually, this is a rising series. Uh, these defeats get progressively worse. So the swing of the film to the negative goes on and on until uh, you actually reach a, a situation where you have the double death, where the hero doesn't see how he can go forward, how his want can ever be achieved. Ticking clock. This is a traditional tool that appears in almost every art form. When you were kids, you saw this when you went to the cinema on Saturday morning, you know, where the hero had a limited amount of time to rescue the girl from being tied to the railway tracks or whatever it was. It's a ticking clock, whatever. It doesn't have to be a literal clock, but in some way there has been a time frame put on the action. Again, the rule is your ticking clock is integral to the action. It's logical. There's a reason for it. It's not just arbitrary. Again and again on television, I see things where the ticking clock is just kicked in there to heighten the suspense. And it, it's, it's an interesting equation because when you do that, you gain in the short term, but you've lost the audience's respect. You've just told them the level of drama you're working at. So they say, okay, we'll watch this because the audience... The audience's curiosity, if nothing else, will keep turning the pages, you know, just to see how this works out. But they don't respect you anymore. They say, oh, is that the level you're working on? Okay, all right. There's uh, tons of examples. I mean, everything from High Noon, all those Westerns, Three Tenter Yuma, they're all based on ticking clocks, you know. As I said, as we mentioned, a great, great ticking clock is one that's built right into the, the core of the action. That was uh, Back to the Future has a great ticking clock, where literally if they miss this, they miss it forever. You know, uh, There's an event going to happen in time, which they know about historically, and um, they've got to make it. Expand time. 
uh, or the opposite, contract time. You saw an example of time being contracted last night. Um, very powerful use of the contraction of time. They, the, the boys and ordinary people, when he, they pick him up and they're driving him to the school for the first time, they come to the railway crossing. And I hope you could hear it on the soundtrack. There's one of the soundtracks missing on that film. I noticed that in the canon you couldn't hear what they were singing, which is a shame, because what they're actually singing is very, very important. They're actually singing about God's peace and everything, and you go from that to a nightmare. Okay? So by not having one of the soundtracks, I don't know how they could do that. They, they, they obviously took a soundtrack off for some parts of the film. I don't know. Um, it actually means you didn't get some of the impact of the film. That uh, when they arrive at those gates, at that at railway crossing, one of the guys says, gosh, this is a long train. Now, if you actually count the seconds of this whole scene with the train, including the symbolic cut you're going to do to the graveyard, it, all, it less, lasts less than 20 seconds. So goodness knows what it would have been like if it was a short train. Okay? Uh, that's the contraction of time which is in your gift as a writer. You, you control this universe. This is your world. It belongs to you. If you don't want time to be long, you have it short. If you want it to be long, you have it long. Whatever suits you. And in Back to the Future, uh, they had a situation <laughs> where, again, is, if you count, say, how long it takes that car to get the length of the street to hit the overhead cable that's going to do the electric charge, it's probably about 20, 30 times longer than it should be, okay? At a conservative estimate. <laughs> and that's fine. The audience don't sit there saying, oh, this is taking a long time. They, not a bit of it. They're just totally gripped saying, please, please get there because they're hooked into the the ticking clock, okay. We've talked about flashbacks. And we've said that the one thing to remember about flashbacks is, by and large, by and large, do not use this until the audience are bonded in to the film. Do not distance them from your film until they're absolutely bonded in. Um, if you were to ask me, what is the best use of flashback ever in a film? which I see none of you are asking me. There's a, there's a film called The Pawnbroker with Rod Steiger. Did any of you ever see this film? Um, he won an Oscar for this film. Black and white, 1962 about. And why the use of flashbacks in this film is great is because do you remember I, I said that to be powerful, to be powerful, when you use a flashback, don't just have it be dramatic, have it be emotional. Now how you do that is you have the audience begging you to see the flashback. Then it's no longer just dramatic, it's emotional. They are totally invested and want to see the flashback. Okay? And uh, this is not easy to do. So the flashbacks in the, the, the pawnbroker literally begins subliminally. Here's a man who runs a, a, a pawn shop in a seedy area of New York who has no emotions, who, who's a dead man. He's a walking dead man. And uh, we'll see that the image system of this film, no we won't because we're not going to deal with it, but the image system of this film are bars and shadows and okay, those occur throughout the film because he's in, he's in prison but he's in a a spiritual prison forever, okay? And we slowly discover, uh, we start to see uh, 
slowly, slowly, we start to see that he was in a prison camp. That his wife was in it. And, and as, I won't tell the film, but as, the, as we go through the film, we just long to know what happened. We become desperate to know, desperate to know what happened. And eventually, we, we see what happens, and it is just devastating. It's just so powerful. Um, it's a great, great use of flashback because it actually they made it emotional rather than dramatic. Okay. Mood. This is very important as a writer. Remember, I said that mood is also in your gift. It's, of course, quite rightly, the, the look of the film, the mood of the film, belongs to the musician, the person who's writing the score, belongs to the director, belongs to the cinematographer, belongs to the editor, but it also belongs to you. And if you say, look at the film, say, of Ing Ingmar Bergman, you start to understand this. So here are these dark, dark films, and, and how is he going to counterpoint them? I mean, is he going to set these dark, dark films in the, in the middle of the night, or what's going to happen again and again? Not always, but often in Bergman films, what, what is going to, what's he going to juxtapose mood-wise against the, the heavy darkness of what's going on between the characters and inside the characters? Again and again, he's going to have... Okay. So you're, you're, you're going to go from a scene, a very heavy scene, to bright sunlight. It's almost like a crash. Not always, by any manner of means. There's lots of films where he's not doing that. But it's, it's very, very important to understand that to hear these things, to learn these things in a dark room is quite different from actually leavening your film with brightness and sunlight and so on. And Bergman isn't an idiot, so he, he understands that. You know? What you can do with mood is you can either underline the content of the film or collide with the content of the film, fight the content, create a mood that's opposite to the content of the film. And these decisions are very, very important. No one told us the truth. <laughs> and, and, and what we thought was that mood, okay, mood was what made you a, a flash young director. Do you know what I mean? Mood was what, mood was to do with virtuosity, you know? So if you could light brilliantly, use music brilliantly, you know, uh, this, was, was, this was what was going to make you stand out from the crowd, the way you use mood, the way you the way you lit things and so on, the way you use this to put a great surface on your film, you know, put it in scope, have it beautifully designed. And so we were never told, we were never told that mood, like everything, serves the story. Okay, mood serves the story. Do you know how you know a great cinematographer. I never know whether it's the director or the cinematographer. And I've only seen it about four times in my life, okay? And I've seen a lot of films. And that's when the cinematographer lights for subtext. And you think, what? When the, when the lighting, the cinematographer, when he lights the film for the subtext, he doesn't just light the surface of the film. He actually lights for what's really going on. You saw an example of that, a very brief example of that last night. There is one scene where that happens in ordinary people. Okay? 
And the scene is this. There's a scene where uh, they come out of the party, and at the party, he's just said that, you know, Conrad's going to see a therapist, you know. They come out, and she, in the car, shreds him up one side of the street and down the other, just lights into him. How could you have said this, you know? Just takes him to town. And how they light that is they pour light onto her. And the reason is, is because the subtext is, you have exposed me. And the greatest fear in this kind of culture, this community, is to be exposed in front of what people think of you. The shame of it, okay? And so they lit it for subtext. That is genius. Not what I was doing when I was 22. But where, where, where all your gifts, where the mood, where the lighting, where the music, everything serves the story of your film. Okay? Hitchcock used a jokey way in To Catch a Thief. And it's amusing, but... Uh, do you remember the scene with Grace Kelly and uh, Cary Grant? and uh, the whole double entendre between diamonds and her body. And at one time, he literally just lights her body. We're talking about diamonds, and, and he, he literally cuts off her head into shadow. So what's lit is shimmering in the light is her body. And that's the use of lighting for subtext, okay? The subtext here is, is a sexual subtext, so he lights the... But it's actually used in a comedic way, and it has nothing in terms of the power of what we, the way it's used, say, in ordinary people in that scene. Uh, the, because the aspiration is different. One is to make the audience smile. They, they, they sort of see it, half see it, and they smile. Uh, and the other aspiration is to actually not to have the audience see it at all, but they feel it. They feel it. They don't know they're feeling it, but they're feeling it. Okay. Okay, main characters. Traditionally, there's four of them. Uh, you actually only need there to be one. <laughs> you could get away with one, technically, hero. Some films only have one, one main character, the hero. Uh, I don't advise it. For example, in the conspiracy genre, where the hero's on the run from faceless pursuers, from the CIA or whoever, often the opponent is never given a face, okay? We, we never, it's never pinned down to one individual. And those kind of conspiracy dramas may have a, a love interest or not. But sometimes there are literally a situation where there are no other main characters. Uh, there's the hero and a plethora of minor characters. Okay. It's not advisable, but technically you could get away with it. Uh, usually, there are four main characters. There's the hero whom we've talked about endlessly. There's the opponent or nemesis character. There's the romance character. And there's the reflection or ally character. The, the, people give these things different names, so usually though they name them the reflection or the ally if they're talking technically. And you can have a, a sort of sub-category called the ally opponent or the opponent ally. And that, uh, that's an obvious character where someone who seems opponent actually be, is an ally, and someone who seems to be a friend turns out to be an opponent. And that's quite powerful. The, uh, the ally opponent's a very powerful one because of the bloodline. 
what we said about the bloodline, where betrayal comes from friend rather than enemy. Okay. Which do you think of these as by far the most important? Uh, for, uh, there's the hero, obviously, but after that, who's the most important? The opponent. Good. Yeah. And that is because uh, the forces of opposition are what are going to determine the growth of our character and the revelation of our character. Okay, so obviously that is going to be true. There are lots of cliches on that side. And we've looked a bit about the, the statements about the opponent, and literally it goes everything from a good opponent makes a good film to, I mean, these are cliches. They're not actually true. But uh, the gist of them is they're true sayings in the sense of they're trying to say, please, please look at the forces of opposition in your film. Please take your hero to the end of the line. Uh, one of the rules about an opponent is if you have an opponent in the film, there must be a confrontation with the opponent face-to-face -face before the end of the film. Hopefully, there will be several um, confrontations. Here's something very important. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but I want to keep spelling it out. The opponent should be empathetic. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, so you must look at it very carefully. But in others, the audience should empathize with the opponent. There's a reason for this, okay? Someone has said that a choice between good and evil is no choice at all. Are you mad? <laughs> and the, the, the audience... <laughs> are not impressed, really. I mean, they go with it, but they're not impressed when, you, when basically in a film you just give them a choice between good and evil. That's no choice. You start to give them choice when moral shading comes into the film. Okay? You start to give them choice when the flaws of your hero are actually shared by your opponent. start to give them choice when they understand why the villain, why the opponent, or doesn't have to be a villain, uh, would do the things he or she does. You start to give them choice when actually the desires of the hero and the opponent are identical, as in Kramer versus Kramer. Here we're into the law of physics. Two bodies can't occupy the same space. Two desire lines can't occupy the same space. One is going to lose. But already, already, that's a different kind of tragedy than just a straight fight between good and evil. This is a much more complex drama and much more powerful and gives you far more opportunity to deal in morality than a straight good and evil thing. Because, because the audience can no longer keep the opponent out there saying, Terminator, not like me, no. villain, you see. What's happening is the, the distance between your audience and the opponent has diminished. They're actually saying, well, I do that. I think like that. I, I have those temptations. And suddenly, what's starting to happen is that the audience are having to look at their own lives. Okay? So your hero, your opponent, the way you use this actually starts to 
drive the theme of the film. Okay? The ways your hero and your opponent are similar is what's going to actually highlight the theme of your film. What makes them different is not that they share the same flaws or whatever. What makes them different is they make different choices. Okay? If it's just because they're different people, that's pathetic. Lee Marvin, as I said, uh, I may have told you this, has, has a great saying. He used to have, he's dead now, but he used to have a great saying about all the characters he played. He played loads of heavies. And, and he says, uh, I never play evil men. I just play guys who are trying to get through their day as best they can. And this is a great statement of truth in this sense. In this sense. Evil people do not think they're evil. Okay? The mafia actually have a name for, for themselves. Uh, they, they think of themselves as the enlightened ones. All these fools, you know. Okay? Evil people don't think that. They think we are do often they think they are doing things that are regrettable, okay, but must be done okay, for the common good or for the, the cause. So, look very carefully at your opponent. Next to your hero, your opponent is your most significant character and a vehicle for all sorts of moral possibility in your film. <coughs> 